on the podcast today we have dr aaron campbell welcome to the podcast aaron thank you glad to be here yeah stoked uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast in the land of the Klehus, Comox, Homoko, and Kaaman First Nations, who were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them into reserves. And uh, yeah, grateful to be here. So, Aaron, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am an assistant professor at the University of Missouri. Um, in the Department of Special Education in the College of Education and Human Development. Um, my areas of emphasis are culturally responsive, um, positive behavior intervention and supports, as well as social and emotional learning, um, and culturally and linguistically diverse learners, as well as I look at um, behavioral interventions that are more equitable and culturally responsive um, for Black students' um, academic success. Awesome. I'd like to I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, how you got into the field in the first place. Yeah, so um, I come from a psychology background mm. uh, and I was in clinical psych um, working as a clinician at the master's level. And I realized that I wanted to have a preventative impact, but that that step was not exactly the step that I was looking for, like when it came to um, assessment and counseling. Um, so that's what made me seek out um, like a research coordinator job, which I did on a literacy grant through University of Texas. Um, and that helped me realize that, oh, I want to do intervention work and kind of implementation science work. Mm. And encouraged me to get my PhD in educational psychology with an emphasis in special education, um, which I got from Texas A&M University College Station. Cool. And how about even further back? Like, how'd you get into psych in the first place? What, what, what brought you there and what was your sort of journey there? Yeah, so I got my bachelor's in psychology and my master's in clinical psych. And how that happened is I really just knew I wanted to work with kids. I knew that I wanted to do something to help kids with their, like, manage their emotions. Like, I felt like um, a lot of my friends, like, love to talk to me about issues or problems, but not just dump on me, but actually mm. talk about how to solution and, like, problem solve these mm. issues. So that's what made me feel like, oh, I like like psychology. But then I learned that psychology has like this really wide realm, right? It's not just like sitting and listening and like problem solving. Like mm. there's some pre uh, prevention work, there's like interventions, there's implementation. And so um, I kind of just had to figure out where I fell in that spectrum. But I knew I would have to get something beyond my bachelor's degree because I just didn't know anyone who was working in the field of psychology with just a bachelor's. So I knew that getting, you know, initially getting that into that major, like I would at least have to go to school one more time. Then I went to school one more time and I was like, well, this ain't it. I don't like it. Mm. <laughs> so then I had to go again. And then I was like, okay, this is right. This is what I wanted to do. So are you still a, a technically a psychologist as well then? or? Um, no. So I ended up, um, when I lived in North Carolina, you didn't have to have passed the ECPP. If you have supervision to like practice, you could work under someone else. Um, so when I decided that I wanted to pursue my PhD, I just didn't worry about 
taking the e-tron because I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah, team. yeah, gotcha. And you just, you, you recently got your doctorate, is that right? Yeah, I got it in August of 2021. Okay, and and what was what was kind of the focus of your PhD work? Yeah, so uh, my PhD work, I still focused on um, emotional behavior disorders. So like behaviorists is like my overall umbrella. And I focused on um, Black students who either um, were at risk of or who have been diagnosed with like emotional disturbance and different types of interventions that we could do to help them be successfully um, academically, as well as build their social and emotional competence. So... And this this continues to kind of be your focus, right? So, so the, the research that you have published right now, some of the more recent stuff, is that was that related to your doctoral work? Was that sort of your doctoral work being published, or no? It was new. Um, so most of the studies that just come out, I ran the data like while I was at my previous appointment, mm. um, which was at um, the Pennsylvania State University. Um, If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is dance. Right on, right on. So right now, then your main sort of focuses are PBIS and social emotional learning through the cultural responsive lens kind of thing. Yes, and then um, mainly with students who have EBD, emotional and behavior disorder, or at risk of. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And are you primarily focused on Black students or? Yeah, okay. Um, but I'm going to do um, this, this spring, I'm actually going to do a couple of the culture responsive studies I did only with Black students. I'm going to focus them on students of color. So it'll be a mix of like non-white students. And I just want to see if the same sort of adaptations um, apply mm. or if we have to be um, that specialized in some of our adaptations that we're making. Um, so I plan to um, test that out this spring. In a couple of steps. And then you also said you're into implementation science work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so... I've heard this phrase a few times. Can you tell me a little bit about what implementation science is, what it's all about? Yeah, so um, with implementation science, it's really about um, how the intervention is designed and the delivery of that intervention, like how systematic it is and how um, easily it can be replicated. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in a lot of, you know, articles that we can read, like someone might have done, like, I don't know, a reading intervention for like students that have poor behavior. Mm-hmm. But then when we read about the intervention and they say it worked, um, it's not like a clear, like procedural fidelity or tracing that we could follow to mm-hmm. to do it again, maybe without contacting those authors and getting some further information. Um, when you use the implementation science framework, um, it's, it's very clear in how the methodology is written up um, in that particular article or brief um, so that it can be applied um, easier um, in the practitioner realm. And I've definitely heard that a lot about how PBIS is sort of a 
Well, it's, it's, it's a common example of sort of implementation science. I've heard that a lot, but I haven't, I haven't heard any other examples. Are there, are there other examples of sort of implementation science? Like, is it, is it used sort of across field sort of thing or? Yeah, so they, they actually use it a lot in the medical field. Um, so it's kind of a framework that comes from the medical field that um, we're sort of adapted into education. Um, and it, of course, it looks different, like with how they do trials and things um, in the medical field. Um, it makes implementation science a, a different sort of framework because in, in education, depending upon the intervention, we may not have like different trials of a certain intervention where like trial three and one worked best or something like that. Um, but it, it comes to us from the, the medical side. Oh, and they also, they use it a lot in public health, like people who are in public health. Um, right on. And so what 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 is it that you do? Because I've heard different people talk about cultural responsiveness and PBIS. What, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so for me, um, kind of PBIS is sort of, sometimes perceived as like a blanket approach. So it's like, um, here we have your praise that we want you to give. Um, we have um, sort of like your your overarching, like school-wide PBIS, so like your overarching like five goals or rules that you want students to follow. Then they have some sort of token economy, um, you know, to earn tickets or, or whatever it is that the mm. school comes up with. And then, after so many tokens or a part of this token economy, they can redeem it um, for a prize um, for exhibiting that positive behavior that we want to see. So that's like the normal framework of PBIS. Right. Well, there are some students where, um, you know, if you want them to earn 10 tokens from your token economy, they might lose interest or not really buy into it after like three tokens because it could have taken them a month to earn three tokens, mm. but they can to get, you know, this, this overarching reward. Mm -hmm. um, so it starts there with like what adaptations. And then we have to look at the ways that the students are earning the awards. Like, is it equitable? Like, is the teacher giving Black students or other children of color that they may perceive or have experienced them to exhibit more challenging behavior? Mm. Are they giving the opportunities to respond so that they can earn these tokens? Hmm. Are they giving them the certain situations where they could, um, you know, answer or perform in the best way so that they could earn tokens like, um, you know, students that are white? Um, so really it comes more into like teacher practice, hmm. like making sure that teachers are being equitable in everything that they do from even how they choose which student they want to call on to give an opportunity to respond, um, how they're assigning jobs that they give out these tokens or rewards for. So basically anything that the teacher can do to reward a child with one of these tokens to get that overarching reward, um, that it is seen as like fair and systematic delivery versus just like, oh, I thought of Heather, so I called on Heather. Or, oh, I thought of Steven, so I called on Steven. Like, mm. maybe it's, I have all my students' names on popsicle sticks in a cup, and they're each in here twice. And so I need someone to come and clear the board. I'm going in my cup. I drew out Ben. 
than is whose. And so every student will always feel like, oh, I have the opportunity to be chosen or the opportunity to respond or to get my chance because I know we're all in there and we all have an equal chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also when students know or can actually believe or feel that things are fair, um, the number of these challenging behaviors or even um, sort of negative dispositions can be adjusted um, because they they feel too like they have the same chance as everyone else, but they need to see it. Um, so seeing that the teacher is just like picking this by chance of who's going to do X is really helpful to the student. Um, so teaching teachers like different practices and techniques like that, as well as you know, teaching teachers to um, be another basis of PBIS is that we want to pre-correct for behaviors before they actually take place. Mm. So before we start pre-correction, not not making the assumption that our students know how we want them to behave, but making sure we've actually taught the behavior. So in your class, if behaving looks like you're seated in your desk, and your notebooks out, your pen is out, your hands, maybe they need to be placed like this. Maybe you want their hands, like if they're, I don't know, whatever it is the teacher calls, like listening and learning position, they actually teach the students, like, this is what I mean. So when you chastise them for not doing it, you know that you've actually taught them the behavior to your expectation and not just like, oh, well, I thought you learned it in Ms. Johnson's class um, because you're not Ms. Johnson, you're Ms. Mr. or Mrs. or they, whomever. And so teach them what you want and how you want it. So they can do it that way in your class. That way, when you're like, oh, you know, Johnny, you know, I I should sit in listening and learning position and you're standing in your chair. And did, how did I teach you listening and learning position is Johnny would be like, oh, you taught me that meant like, I need to sit like this or something. Um, and you can be like, okay, so I'm glad that you know what it is I meant by that. Um, and then you can hold them accountable for it because they recall what you taught them to do. Um, so teaching teachers that they have to teach behaviors that they want to see and not mm. just make assumptions that children know how to behave. Mm. Um, and the other thing about culture responsive PBIS is we need to take into account culture is not race, but culture has to do with family. Mm. Culture has to do with like household environment. It has to do with um whatever that familiar um, structure looks like. So for instance, like if you always have a child that you feel like is yelling, it might make sense to speak to their parents or whomever like is the caregivers of that child to be like, do you guys normally like speak loudly in your home? I noticed that, you know, Stephen was always yelling Mm. or he's a lot louder than I'm accustomed. And they might be like, oh yeah, like the kids are in their rooms. When we want something, we just yell room to room. So it's possible that you say, use your inside voice. Stephen, like, does know it, that it he's is. already but, doing that. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, what, I am like, I'm, and it's just because he's used to screaming. Mm. Um, but the teachers, they'll just perceive that as like, oh, he's being aggressive. Like, if they're like, give me a pencil, okay. You know, like, it's just <laughs> like, no, he should, he's just used to yelling. It's some simple things like that that we have to take into account. And so, yeah really important to consider like the culture that students come from and then create your classroom culture. So you can be like, oh, at home, I know you're like in different rooms as you shared y'all yell room to room, but we're all in the room together. So when you say something, you can use this voice, you know, like making mm-hmm. sure you teach that 
But then you're being respectful because you're acknowledging what it is that takes place in their home Mm. and telling them like, you know, that's fine to do at home. And I know it's because you're in different rooms, but here we're all together and we can just, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you're, you're not being disrespectful. Yeah, I love it. In what you do at home and that's okay. But here, like, we want to do it like this because our community is looking different. We're all in the same room. We don't have to project so loud to get our voice across to the next space. Um, So that's another thing. And then the other thing is, in considering students' culture, like, even within, like, lesson planning, a lot of teachers get caught up in saying, like, oh, they want me to use this literature curriculum. They want me to read this book. They want me to teach this lesson plan. It's like, okay, you can do that. But in the books that they want you to read um is it possible that like if it's a nonfiction book and it's a nonfiction book i don't know talking about a certain topic or a certain thing um you could also find one that's reflective of the students in your room like mm. this, this um so if you have black students asian students um latinx hispanic um students if you have japanese american students or japanese immigrants like Just like so they can feel like there's representation for them in your room. A lot of teachers like to buy ready-made posters, um, especially when they want to talk about like emotions or things like that. And they'll only have like a white family, mom, dad, and like two Mm. kids. Um, But you know what? Like our rooms and things look a lot different. Like it might be like mom and grandma raising a kid or kids. It could be like two moms. It can be two dads. I mean, like, so just making your environment inclusive of the students who are in it so they don't feel like their culture or what's happening in their home is wrong. Mm. Um, So some ways to do that without teachers actually having to explicitly say that is this in mixing up those book choices, like for read aloud books, if they don't want to read them aloud, having them available in the classroom, like for students just to go over to the library and see on their own. Um, other ways that um, it's important to be equitable um, is teachers realizing that they have implicit bias because we all have implicit bias, like when it comes to a number of things. So if teachers are willing, like before the beginning of the school year, just to self-reflect and do an implicit bias survey on their own. They don't have to like share the results um, with anyone. They'll just see like some preferences that they have in their subconscious. And once they become aware of those and not just aware, but accepting that that's what it is um, that that they have going on, they can be more cognizant of it. And one way I encourage teachers to plainly be able to see when they are experiencing implicit bias is to keep what I call a behavior journal. Mm. And so what a behavior journal looks like is like I have some teachers, I told them it's just um, like just like a composition book like this. And you just open it up and you'll just put the date, right? And let's say like Harry threw a marker at Ben. Like you'd write down like on 8-17, Harry threw marker at Ben. And then let's say on 8-20, Harry hit Catherine. Like just, you know, like writing things down, like different mm-hmm. instances place. Not just on one kid, but anything. Anything that you can remember that you had to correct for more so than like 
off task behavior, like mm. talking at a seat, anything that's beyond that, but strictly like behavioral, you write it down. Okay. So that way the teacher can start to see if there's actually patterns mm. or if they notice they're only writing things down about Harry. Like, does that mean he's the only one that did something in the room that day? Or are you picking on Harry? Mm. Are you like overemphasizing like Harry's behaviors? And the other way is when it comes to parent-teacher conference time, you'll have this journal of data so that you can speak from a place of factual information versus emotional information toward that parent. And that way the information can be better received and the parent won't feel like they need to be on the defensive as you just trying to present their their child is a problem of your room. You can be like, hey, I've noticed some patterns with Harry. I've kept a journal. I keep a behavior journal of all the students. And so let me just tell you some of the different things that are happening. And maybe you can find out that Harry's having this issue during math. So maybe he has some sort of avergence toward math, or maybe he's mm. doing this during transitions, which means you need to find another way for Harry to transition because whatever you have in place does not work for him. It causes mm. him to you know, do X, Y, Z. Um, and then um, the behavior journal also allows the teacher to go back and review. Um, like I said, if, if there's just certain students that they have in that journal, but then when they talk to like the, that great team and they'll be like, oh, Harry's a problem, but also blah and blah and blah are issues too. And you're like, oh, I don't even have anything of them in my hmm. journal. I'm always focused on Harry. So that'll show that, oh, I've developed an implicit bias like toward this student because maybe something happened during the first two weeks of school. And that can allow them to rethink that and kind of like give Harry the same grace that he they, they give other students that aren't in that journal. Wow, lots going on. So that sounds cool. That sounds hard too. Um, it seems like... I'm not in, I'm not a teacher, but it seems like this day and age, there's probably a lot of younger teachers that are, you know, probably a lot more aware of social justice and things like that. I know that's been a lot more of a conversation, especially for newer teachers and just this sort of next generation of folks. And I could totally see them, you know, uh, leap it onto this stuff pretty quickly. What... I'm wondering what these conversations look like initially with, with teachers that, you know, may not be familiar with any of this stuff may may be certain that no the reason harry's problematic is because harry's problematic and you know it's got nothing to do with whether he's black or white or whatever um you know i'm 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 not there there are no patterns here you're you're brainwashing me or whatever you know it's 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 you know there, there's nothing going on here like because i mean i know just from sort of my own perspective you know i i didn't recognize my own biases until just a few years ago um and it was a perfect storm of a situation for me to be in a place where I could start to go, Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I definitely have, you know, some changes I need to make. What do these conversations kind of look like early on when you're trying to sort of get folks, you know, interested in doing an implicit bias survey or writing in a journal or, or acknowledging that, you know, maybe I've been, you know, picking students, you know, despairingly or whatever? Um, they're pretty difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, so, and it happens with older and younger teachers, right? Okay. Because some of them will equate like, oh, we have a Black teacher on our team or we have a Latinx teacher on our team and, and I'm their friend. 
Mm -hmm. So there's no way I'm racist or there's no way that I have bias towards mm -hmm. non-white people. Right. Um, so the way I like to do it is I like to just start out with like simple examples. So I'll say, when you think of a doctor, tell me who and what you think of. Mm. People say a white man. Okay. So that's showing gender preference. Um, some of them say older man. So, you know, that shows a little bit of like ageism preference. Mm. Um, so I, I like to start it out like with questions like that. Like, what do you think of when you think of doctor, police officer, firefighter, teacher? Because um, a lot of people think of like middle-aged white woman, that mm -hmm. type of thing. So just to show like implicit bias isn't just applied to black versus white people or mm. people of color versus white people. We have implicit bias in every single thing that we think of or do. Right. Like when... Even when you go to get your nails done, like when you walk in a nail salon, who do you expect to see? Hmm. Um, so when I can simplify it like that and explain to them, like, this is the level that I'm coming to you with when we're talking about implicit bias, it kind of helps soften that defense mechanism that's hmm. coming. I'm like, I'm speaking of implicit bias overarching in general. Now, yes, we're going to talk about like how it can relate to your classroom, but it's still implicit bias, like whether it's we were talking about doctor, police officer, and now we're talking about you see you have a Zacchaeus and you have a Ryan. And then they'll be like, OK, I see. OK, so how do I do the inventory? What do I need to do? Mm. And then they do the inventory and I, I leave it up to them if they want to share any things or anything that surprised them. And normally people, they do want to share, like they mm. talk about how oh, I saw that. It says I have a preference toward like white men. And I, I really can't believe that. I thought my mom raised me to be like super independent and like mm. really like support women. But I just, I seem to just keep picking man for everything. Mm. Or um, it even talks about different characteristics like around like facial features, like mm. lips, nose, eyes. Mm, right. um, and it's just the, um, the IAT that you can take through Harvard. Mm. Um, website is free um but yeah so it's really good to have those conversations and when we start out with like the general principle like just in everyday thinking um that softens like the defensiveness of them trying to make it feel like I, I'm trying to say they're racist teachers mm -hmm. when that's not the case I just want to show that implicit bias exists through like every single process we have throughout our day and we might not even realize it mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. It's a good way to soften it by just asking sort of these general questions that have nothing to do with their classroom first. Yeah. And I'm just like, it's, it, we all have it, like, no matter what. And just, it's your preconceived notions that you don't realize you have until someone else. Mm, that's awesome. And and do, do people make the connection then that, you know, that, that it's okay, that, that it's, it's normal to have biases and it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, racist or sexist or whatever in, in terms of sort of, I mean, maybe, I don't know, I don't know if it, maybe it does mean that, but. Um, <laughs> sometimes it does and then sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Um, normally I just try to point that out. Like, yeah. no, like I try to point it out more so that it's not something you can 100% control. You can't right. control we all have it, like it's inevitable. But if you're aware of it and you're cognizant of it, yeah. then you're thinking you can make more clear and conscious choices. Yeah. And I've definitely heard a few had a few folks on have talked about sort of some of this culturally responsive 
learning and, and kind of teaching and whatnot. But you're the first person that I've heard say, which I think is great, that they're actually even just looking at the posters and the books in the, in the room and those sorts of things and, and how that can kind of affect people. Um, so are there things like, I mean, I, I know there's lots of books that are available that are written that are kind of based in different cultures. I've seen a lot a lot more of those recently. And so I, I know those are available. But do they have things like those posters and things like that that are sort of made for, you know, folks from different groups or are the posters themselves all designed that is like do the poster companies need some training too sort of thing the poster companies definitely need some training um i currently am working on like trying to get a grant um because i've done like quite a few studies on social emotional learning and getting feedback from students and the teachers as far as like what they felt was needed mm. so now i feel like i have the tools to build a culturally responsive social and emotional um, behavior intervention package mm. sort of curriculum. And so um, there's still a, a niche and a market like to create these things. Mm. Um, and what I have even encouraged um, in some of my sessions with teachers um, and even admin um, is, you know, since I'm telling you, you need to teach what you want to see to your students, like, teach them like how to be ready for school, teach them how to line it up, teach them how to transition. Like when you go through emotions and you talk about like what it looks like to be happy, what it looks like to be frustrated, like photograph them, photograph them in different groups, put blow up pictures of them and place them on the wall. Then they'll definitely feel like they belong in your classroom community because when they look around the classroom, they see reflections of them in their, their classmates. Mm. I also like the comment you made about which I had never thought about before that the student's own perception of equity in the classroom can 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 be have an effect on their behavior. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes, like the one statement we hear all children saying is like, "That's not fair." Yeah, you know, and you know some people respond and say like oh it's not supposed to be but our mm. life's not there right and it's like okay they're going to learn that life is not fair mm -hmm. and when they learn that it's probably going to be in an unfortunate situation mm -hmm. however i push back on teachers and i go do you really want your classroom community or your classroom environment to be reflective of another place that's not fair for them mm -hmm. like is your classroom not supposed to be a safe space? And I'll tell them, like, if you don't want your classroom to be that way, then that's fine. That's understandable. And, you know, that's your prerogative. But if you really want students to engage, feel comfortable learning um, and feel accepted in your room, you wouldn't want it to feel like, oh, this is another place you have to come to and deal with in your everyday or your life. That's not fair. So to make it fair. Let's do simple things with, you know, equitable, like, delivery of jobs, equitable delivery of who gets to answer this question, who gets mm. to be in the line, who gets to do this. Like, let them see that it's different in here. And if they see that it's different in your room, they'll behave and receive different, too. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's that simple. Kids are watching every single thing that you do. Yeah, and they're no. like, oh. Okay. Um, so I, I feel like it's all about and just explaining it's the little things 
Um, but people, when we just say like culturally responsive, like they really just get caught up in like race and color. Mm. Like they forget like being responsive is being responsive to the whole child, to that that, whole, that child's like family. And when the kids can go home and they're telling their parents like, oh, and in this class and their class, you know, they treat me like this. And then they may go home and say that another teacher is treating them like differently. Who do you think the parent's going to be more receptive to come parent-teacher conference time or if a situation has arose? It's going to be the one where the child says they're treated like a citizen and mm-hmm. like a, mm-hmm. a, a, a great human being. Yeah, yeah, I get you, I get you. Maybe you could tell. Maybe could talk a little bit about the 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 two the two uh, recent studies that came out this year. Uh, it looks like mm-hmm. a, a lot of the authors are the same. So, were the two studies done part of one bigger experiment sort of thing, or? Um, I just have a particular group of people that I like to write with. Yeah, um, yeah. if that makes. sense. Sure, sure. No, they were they were two separate studies. So one um, was specifically like with just black males, and um, it was an alternating treatments design, Mm -hmm. meaning um, through self monitoring. So we used a self monitoring application called iConnect, which you can get through Android Play Store or you can get through Apple Play Store. Mm. Um, And traditionally, iConnect is used with high school students. Okay. um, Since it's a self monitoring application. But I used it with um, elementary age male students um, because I wanted to see if we could teach them how to self-monitor um, at that age. And if in turn self-monitoring would decrease um, the number of times that the teacher had to stop to correct or pre-correct for behavior, as well as if that would decrease the number of externalizing behaviors. So sort of those challenging behaviors that the teacher was seeing like daily in core content areas like Mm. math. Um, So virtually it was determined um, prior to the start of the study, what day the students would have the iPad with the iConnect app um, to self-monitor. But they did that along with culturally responsive check-in, check-out and um, the social emotional learning curriculum. So they'd have one day or they'd have a day where either they'd have the SEL curriculum, which was delivered to the whole class. Um, and then they would get check in, check out um, with their teacher, meaning where they set their goals. Um, they'd make a connection to the prior day um, with the teacher, um, share something about their evening. The teacher would also share. So it was more like a conversation, not just the kid spitting a bunch of information, the teacher saying, okay. Um, but then having a conversation and sort of building a relationship over the course of the intervention um, with each other. Um, it's also different that they did their check-in and check-out with their primary teacher versus doing it with like an assistant principal or like a, some sort of school dean or someone other than the teacher. But we included the teacher. So that relationship that was a little bit broken because of behaviors and things that had taken place, it could be repaired. Mm. Um so they would get those three things. So the the curriculum, the check-in, check-out, and the self-monitoring app. Or they would just get the curriculum and the check-in, check-out and no app. Mm. So it was predicted on that day if they would have a self-monitoring app or not. And virtually what we saw in the study is that um, both of them decrease those externalizing behaviors. So those behaviors that we didn't want to see. It's just that on the days that the students were able to self-monitor 
um, with the iPad application, um, the the de- decreasing decreasing trend was um, at a much faster rate. Hmm. Um, it was on the and you can probably see that um, if you look through the article at the visual analysis um, in the graphs. So hmm. you can see like both interventions work. It's just on days where the students were able to self monitor and being reminded. Um, to focus on certain behavioral issues that they struggled with. Mm. Um, they had less more instances of externalizing behaviors. Yeah, yeah, I see that. So tell me a bit about, more about what this app is and how it works. Yeah, so the app was developed um, at KU, so University of Kansas, mm. um, at Juniper Gardens. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so they developed it through a grant, and this particular app you can either use the pre-programmed prompts that they have in there, which is like, are you on task um, type of prompts, or you can like pre-program them based off of what students need. So in this particular study, um, we pre-programmed them because the students had different behaviors that they were struggling with. Mm. Um, So sometimes it would ask them like, are your hands and feet to yourself right now? Because the students struggled like not to hit on and like kick at other people. Um, it would ask, like, are you working on what you're supposed to be working on? Because a lot of them would forget what they had been asked to do. Um, that was another struggle that we had. Um, another struggle or another prompt would be, like, are you currently in your seat? Because a, a lot of these male students would just get up and walk around, like, just get out of their seat, like, all of a sudden and just I'm start taking laps around the room. And laps around the room were like, okay but you need to like work out a system with the teacher. Like, you know, I need a break. Like, so they know why you're up and walking around and, mm. and your break shouldn't interrupt others. So like they're up having a break and they're at someone else's table, like, you know, distracting them. So different sort of prompts. And so it was the time varied between when that um, application would either vibrate flash or like make a sound to remind the students. And we did this based off of like baseline data. Mm. So like maybe like every seven or so minutes like Luke is off task then we'll set the iPad up or the application up to like beep flash or vibrate around like the six minute mark to remind Luke before it seems like he's going to get up like are you in your seat so that way when he okay. sees that prompt he knows oh okay I need to be in my seat and hopefully he won't get up so it's pre-correcting before the teacher has to be like Luke why are you out of your seat Mm. Um, that was one thing the teachers really liked about the app that they could like personalize it the app also kept track of the data um, that the student would respond to the student when they saw the prompt they would pick yes or no so Luke are you currently in your seat yes so we'll see how many times Luke is saying yes Mm -hmm. or are you if he says no then we'll see how many times like Luke actually isn't in his seat. And so the application can keep this data for you. And the type of data it's keeping is like the same kind we would probably put in our behavior journal. And then it's interesting to see like how it matches up. Mm, and uh, I was wondering about the that. Thing, yeah, the other thing that's good about this application is it teaches students to be honest and to be more aware of their behavior. Like mm. if the app just beep and actually are you in your seat and you're standing in the middle of the floor, on the way to your neighbor's table. Okay. Then it's like, oh, well, when they yell at me or when I get in trouble for not being in my seat, like, I'm really not in my seat right now. So, like, I can't even get mad because mm. I'm literally not in my seat. And so they know I'm not in my seat. And I'm looking at, it just reminded me, and I'm not in my seat. 
So them just becoming more responsible and accountable for their behavior is great too. So that way when they have to be, you know, chastised for it or they receive some sort of consequence, emotionally we can regulate that better because we understand that, you know, we were not in our seat. We made the choice to be out of yeah, our seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the app reminded me they can see I'm out of my seat. Okay, so I lost a minute from recess. I don't like it, but okay, I get it. So we're we're able to regulate that decision yeah. making. Oh, that's really cool. I, I could totally use this, I think, when I was a kid. Because, I, you know, I had undiagnosed ADHD. And I think, you know, I, I imagine I would have been up moving around lots of times and not realizing I was probably supposed to be seated right then. Or not even realize that, you know, <laughs> I probably not even realize that I actually was standing because I was so distracted by sort of everything as I was moving around. And, the, you know, it's almost like sleepwalking sometimes when you're when you're so distracted and you kind of move from place to place. So I, I could have mm-hmm. sort of overt um things to come on and prompt me i think would be awesome and i love that it's all i love that it doesn't require because i was you explained it really well but but initially i was like how are you getting these kids to even you know turn on this app and start doing this stuff but it's just on it's doing it all all pre-programmed and prompting them is it on like a phone or an ipad or 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 how's that work I use the iPads, right. but you can put it on an iPad, um, a tablet, or you could use a phone. Right. I'm just sort of thinking of the kids that are up moving around. Are they carrying it with them, or is it beeping on their desk, and then they're running back to it and going? They carried it with them. So I had the sort of iPad case where it had um, um, like a strap. Oh, so yeah, they yeah. Could it like a crossbody, and so they would just wear it. Yeah, cool. And, and they, they actually really liked that part. Yeah. Like always yeah 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 i didn't yeah. of course any, like data i can defend on that but just like because of single case study and i was there taking the data every day like they definitely like took some pride in having like an the second secret word is firefighter okay. yeah you kind of described it already but just for folks like myself included, who haven't had a ton of experience with kind of PBIS. Check-in, check-out seems to be like something you always hear about when people talk about PBIS. Check-in, check-out and token economies seem to be sort of two kind of really common interventions in 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 PBIS. Can you just tell me a little bit about kind of what check-in, check-out is and, and kind of has been? Because you mentioned like this is it, it often it would involve like an administrator or something like that and 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 then and then again tell me how you kind of adapt it culturally yeah yeah traditionally check in check out is five steps so you're checking in in the morning and they normally have it with like they call it a mentor so it could be like some sort of like dean of behavior assistant principal it might be school counselor school social worker um but you'll check in with them and during this check-in, they're asking, oh, do you have like your pen, pencil, paper, book, stuff you need for school today? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you're going to work on. Then um, following the check-in, um, you take a paper or some sort of recording um, card. So they might call it like a daily behavior report card, a DVRC, mm. that they carry with them throughout the day. And then teachers in the content areas or specials 
they will place feedback in regards to how that student behaved as it relates to whatever goal was set. Mm. Then they'll come back and um, after after that feedback, they'll check out with Mm. the um, person they checked in with. And so they'll look at the feedback um, that they got throughout the day. They'll go over the goal and they'll determine or if it's a point system or like a number of tally marks, if the student has earned, normally the target rate is like 80%. So um, if they 80% at least met their goal today, and then they will either award them an immediate prize or give them a token that allows them to earn a larger prize at the end of the week mm. if they can do this three out of the five days of the week. Gotcha. And, and, and are all the kids doing it or is it select kids? Like, how does that work? So normally this is what we call a tier two intervention. Okay. So tier tier one is like universal whole class. It, it, so that's normally like how like curriculums, like math lessons delivered, all that. Tier two is like select students that seem to slightly not be responding to like whatever your whole class system is. Mm. Um, these are the students that you would see maybe at like a pullout round table with the teacher going through like reading or math in a different way. Um, or these are the kids who like the teacher has an overarching behavior system, but they still seem to be like having a little bit of a disconnect. So then we'll try something that's tier two level. Um, and that would be like check and check out. So it might be maybe like four to five, four to seven students, you know, out of the whole class that might need it. And is there, is there any kind of stigma associated with that? Because now you got this kid carrying around a card that no other kid's carrying around. Um, a lot of schools have adapted it in different ways. Some of them like do it electronically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't really like heard much like backlash about it because mm-hmm. in schools, like there's so many students that have like individualized IEPs mm-hmm. or um, individualized behavior plans that there's just a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure maybe like back in like the early 2000s, like when it was called like checking connect and stuff, mm. it could have been a bit of a stigma, but now it's like a pretty normal intervention that people use. Gotcha. So and just something you expect to see like, in schools. Yeah. And some people even call it like a mentorship um, mm. uh, versus like check in, check out, depending mm. on how they set it up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, okay. That, that makes sense. And that's not at all what I thought check in, check out was. I appreciate you explaining it to me. Um, so so now what made what made it culturally adapted in sort of a study and just in general? Yeah, so um it looked different um in each study. So the study with um one of the studies that I did, I matched the students by race and gender okay. um to their check in, check out coordinator, but it was still a teacher that they would have had throughout the day. So um if they normally they switch for subjects like math and reading mm-hmm. and science. So it's one of the teachers that they would have seen, but if they were a black male, they got a black male, they, they checked in and checked out with that black male. Mm. And if they were a black female, they checked in and checked out with a black female. So that was the first thing I did. Um, and like I said, so I'm gonna tell you two different ways. The second thing that I did is we had more of a scripted conversation. So um, between teacher and student, the next thing is, that makes it more culturally responsive is is normally the student and the teacher has some sort of disconnect where the teacher either is constantly sending this child out of the classroom yep. for 
behavior and they're missing instructional content or, um, you know, the teacher has this child sitting in a desk by themselves in the back corner and then everybody else is like over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something like severed about that relationship. Um, So instead of having the student get a different mentor outside of the classroom teacher and then the teacher be like, okay, like this other person, that's not me. That's not spending time with the kid is making a decision. If they're getting a candy bar, this is ridiculous. I'm annoyed. And then when they get that behavior report card, they're like, did they behave? No, Hmm. damn. You know, (laughs) because they feel a little bit like, you know, there's an issue there. Sure. Um, so I really wanted it to be the classroom teacher um, and the student who have to work to repair this relationship. And so in doing so, um, I indirectly um, make them understand this notion of cultural competence because they have to ask that student, well, tell me one thing that happened last night that was good. That, that was good. Mm. And then tell me one thing that happened last night that was not so good. Mm. This is giving you, um, you know, a spotlight of what's happening in this child's life, mm-hmm. you know learning things like well it was actually good that I had dinner because we normally don't get dinner Hmm. you know because mom's at work or she doesn't have money but last night we ate because grandma picked us up or I don't know she got money from somewhere or you might you might learn oh well it was good that like we were safe but we slept in our car you know so Hmm. like Teachers were then able to learn that some of these students were coming to school with like burdens um, of instances and things that they had not experienced in all their years of living. Mm -hmm. So they entered school and the first thing you do is yell at them because they didn't bring their book bag. We've already like started the day off like real awful and it's just going to ratchet up from there. Um, So just you know, being able to listen and hear where the student is coming from. And then after the student shares and the teacher will share, well, something that happened good for me last night is like, oh, um, my husband cooked dinner and normally I have to do all the cooking mm. and cleaning. And he, or, you know, my son took his first steps or, you know, so yeah. they're sharing. Yeah, so yeah. like in a relationship, we share, we get to know each other. So they're doing that. So we're building like that step of empathy in. Mm. We're also learning to listen to the student versus just talking at the student. And the student is also learning to listen to the teacher versus just listening to them to respond because they are defensive at defending whatever behavior they're Mm. getting in trouble. Um, The next part of the process was um, to seek feedback, like the teacher as the the check-in, check-out mentor, seek feedback. What can I do to help you be successful today? What do you need from me? Mm. Then the um student taking the you know right processing skills to figure out like okay today like to earn this prize like I've got to keep my hands to myself I've got to you know follow directions within x amount of time Hmm. what do I um maybe they need you to move their seat maybe they don't need to sit by such and such but Hmm. they needed that to tell you like I can't focus if I'm sitting by like my my best friend or my enemy someone I don't like Hmm. Uh, Maybe for them to be successful, they're like, well, you know, I, I don't have my book bag. I don't have anything that I need. So if you could just give me the supplies without uh, picking on me and everybody knowing I don't have them, you know, like that helps. Mm-hmm. You know? So just getting that and then having the student like articulate what that goal is. So having them verbally say it and then asking them, OK, so you said that you need to 
Um, keep your hands and feet to yourself. You need to um, respond to directions or feedback within a reasonable amount of time. Can you tell me what that looks like? So mm-hmm. I need to give you an example. So when they don't do it, you can say, hey, we talked about this this morning. Mm-hmm. You said that um, you, you know, meeting your goal look like this. Are you doing that right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the next part of the process. And then um, instead of taking the card around for feedback, because I'm focused on the student getting as much, um, you know, academic content delivery back and being able to be a part of that classroom environment. Um, Teachers could solicit feedback. Like if something happened, if they are switching classes and they felt like they had to tell the teacher something, Um, but if there was no instance or anything like that that needed to be shared, um, they would just check out with that same um, primary teacher and um, determine how they did or didn't meet their goal for that day. Um, To just cut down the the back and forth and any sort of like bias that's taking place with teachers that weren't a part of the intervention mm. and didn't have the same, um, cultural training. Right. And can this stuff work if, um, because then the very first thing you said, which I think is important, you know, around matching, trying to match the student with someone that, you know, looks like them. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, so if they're a black male, trying to find a black male teacher and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I definitely heard from a lot of folks I've talked to is that that's often not an option. You're often in a school where maybe there are no black teachers, um, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and and uh, you know, or there are no male teachers, or um, or certainly no black male teachers. Um, um, obviously, some work needs to be done in recruitment and retention, and that's a that's sort of probably a, a different conversation that you might be involved in. Uh, but can this stuff be effective if 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 you don't have a teacher that that they that they sort of see as you know potentially being safer or whatnot? Yeah. So um, in another study I've done, um, it we started out with more like what is cultural competence and what does that look like in your teaching. So um, it definitely can be successful, but we have to take the time to give teachers that space to ask questions mm-hmm. that uh, they feel maybe afraid to ask, especially in today's political climate. Yeah. So we have to give them space. And then we have to actually train them on, you know, like what it looks like to be culturally competent with your students. Mm-hmm. And then also how you translate that into being culturally competent with their families, because yeah. we know the cycle, like um, we have to have that parental and familial trust for the student to ultimately engage and, and trust and um, be successful in our classroom. So providing that training up front, um, and like I said, allowing that safe space for teachers to ask questions like free of judgment um, and receive sort of like respectful feedback on both ends, and then teaching them like how to implement the intervention um, and what that looks like. It most definitely can work. Um, it just takes that um, I don't even want to say it's an extra step, but just the clarifying step of making sure they understand what cultural competence is. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of teachers speak about how they don't learn about it in their um, pre-service teaching programs in mm. college and how sometimes they feel unprepared to work with students that have um, behavior intervention plans or students that can be more challenging. And so they're they're automatically like hypervigilant um, when they encounter 
some sort of difficulty. And are you involved in that kind of work too at the, at the university as far as sort of training teachers? Yeah, so I teach um, like behavior management courses to undergraduate students um, and graduate students. Um, I also am working to um, design a course, um, which will be delivered this fall to our doctoral students here about the intersection of diversity and culture within special education. And we're going to talk about it um, at the school level, um, as well as what it looks like from a research perspective, um, so that they're able to apply it um, to their own areas of emphasis and work. So that's super important. And it's, it's really, really, really what I want to teach and talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate to get invited to do like a lot of PDs, um, for different school districts nice. where I can come in about like culturally competent um, teaching. That's awesome. Now, I know you may have already talked a lot about this and I just didn't know what it was called, um, but can can you tell me a little bit about, again, and I've heard this phrase a lot, and again, just not being in education, I don't entirely know what it means, but I hear about it everywhere. What 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 do you mean by social emotional learning? Like what what's that all about? And um and then how are you doing it different? Yeah, so um, when I say SEL, like I'm talking about how we educate the whole child. So um, it's hard to expect the kid to come in and take in any academic content if they don't know how to regulate how they're feeling. So let's say they got upset that morning because they missed breakfast yeah. or because they're what, you know, maybe they eat school breakfast and they wanted the pancakes and all they had left was the cereal. And like now they are just so upset that they didn't get those pancakes that they can't focus on anything else but mm. pancakes. So um, I mean, and how we teach students to regulate like, OK, you're frustrated, you're upset, you're angry. That's a normal emotion. It is okay. How do we change that disposition? How do we shift from that when the answer is not more pancakes? Like we're there, they're gone. We're not getting those. How can we bring ourselves like back to where we can be receptive? Mm. Um, that's a skill that has to be taught. And yes, it it did used to be taught by parents. Like parents mm -hmm. used to have more time to listen and say, "Oh, I know how you're feeling," or "You maybe you this, maybe that." Parents don't always have time to do that anymore mm. uh, with workload and different responsibilities that they may have. So as a teacher, it all goes back to the climate in your room and you being receptive to saying like, okay, I acknowledge that you're upset. I acknowledge that you're feeling X way. I can't get you more pancakes. What can I do to help you with this? Mm. It could be something like, wow, do you think I could be like, have an opportunity to be a line leader today? At one point, I mean, it could be something simple as that, like allowing the child to say something else that will make them feel better. Mm. Because adults, when we get upset and we can't have whatever it is we want it, we're like, well, you know, maybe I'll just go out and have a glass of wine and I'll it'll be okay. Mm. Like, you know, those are different ways that we would cope. So a child too needs to learn like a coping mechanism, like how to shift. So that's what I mean by SEL, like teaching that. Um, I also mean in... You know, when teaching in the moment, so I think it's really important, like when students get upset or something takes place, they get angry, they get mad, they're frustrated, like to try to center them so you can teach them through their own example. Mm. But if you can't, 
Um, I really feel that books um, are super duper important. And that's what I've added in a lot to um, the Strong Start curriculum that I've used in the past is different read aloud books that can teach about the certain emotion and processing mm. um, that we're trying to, to teach the student throughout that particular lesson of the course. Um, so, so that they can visualize and see like what it looks like to feel or to decompress from a certain feeling. Um, so that's what I mean by SEL. And how I do it different is I don't think we just need to learn the skill set without self-monitoring of behavior. Mm. So once we can teach students how to regulate their behavior, then I feel like we need to teach them what it looks like to be accountable. And in being accountable, how can they pre-correct themselves before the behavior actually takes place? So that way, there's no need for chastising. There's no need to be sent out of the room. There's no need for disciplinary referral um, because they've been able to process and go through those steps um, before it reaches um, a level where something else is needed. Okay, gotcha. And so... It's not brainwashing of children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, it has nothing to do with sexuality. It has nothing to do with gender preference, um, at least not in how I view it or how I teach it. Mm. Uh, It just simply has to do with how to recognize one's emotions and how to also recognize others' emotions and feelings. Mm. Once you're self-aware and then once you're socially aware, how can we make more responsible decisions and how can we be respectful to one another? Why did you bring up sexuality and gender differences? Are there, are there like misconceptions of social emotional learning? Are there like people that are against it because they think it means something completely different? Well, um, it seems to be. Mm. Um, so like when you just listen like um, and different um, things you see on TV or in social media, mm. you'll often hear people say like SEL is brainwashing my kid. Really? Um, I don't want you to say like that family looks a certain way or I don't want you teaching my kid that um, they're they're not nice or they're not this if they have a different belief um and that is not at least how I view social mm. and emotional learning or yeah. what I want it to be um but it's definitely a buzzword right now and it's a it's a combination of words that you can't say in quite a few states really yeah at least you cannot be, especially you can't be saying SEL in, in Florida. I think they've outlawed it. Like, no, you may not say that. Uh, when I say, I'm, I'm going to say I get that. When I say I get that, I get that in the sense of the the uh, because of the skewed sort of perspectives of the, of these current governments right now, sort of against a lot of you know certainly a lot of things related to sexuality and gender and um, and, and race. You know. Um, and and you know the way you know some states are rewriting history and 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 banning the teaching of things this and that, and so are, so folks are basically associating SEL as sort of as being with that kind of stuff. Like that if if folks are sort of be able to self regulate and be able to sort of be socially and emotionally you know sort of able to deal with their own sort of issues. 
states see that as problematic. Yes, but they only see it as problematic because they they just don't they haven't taken the time to understand what it is. Mm-hmm. They just buzzword like SEO, yeah. and it's like, oh, they're not liking that in this state. Oh, we don't like we don't want it either. We don't mm-hmm. want it either. Uh, but it's it's really good when like some politicians are open to people coming explaining mm-hmm. what these concepts are before they make decisions. Right. Um, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Wild. I learned that before. Um. So what what uh so the other thing I guess related to SEL stuff is is this stuff that's primarily done in younger, like early grades, or or is this kind of work done in with older kids too? The social emotional stuff. Like are they they they, they also have curriculums for, for older students as well. Hmm. Uh, from how I've seen it be more effective with older students, it's sort of through like affinity groups. Um, so whether it be like, what are those? if they're, um, so affinity groups are like a group that you feel that you can identify with, um, a group that you feel you can be very entrusted with, you can be open with, honest with. So for instance, like at predominantly white institutions, they might have something like a black faculty caucus or something like that, mm. or a black faculty council. Um, that's supposed to be like a sort of affinity space, like a safe space, maybe to talk about um some inequity that you experienced um mm. with a colleague that was not black mm. um but that's a safe space for you to talk about it um and not be judged or um to not make anyone else feel uncomfortable because they can identify with what you're feeling because they too may or may not have experienced that um there's affinity groups for um people who are um have gender identification differences and how they mm-hmm. want to identify. Um, there's affinity groups for, um, you know, students maybe who um, are less into athletics and more into academics. And so right. their affinity could be like even chess club, like, yeah, yeah. oh, like love, like, so. Um, Affinity, just a group, uh, the definition of affinity, the way you can identify, feel trust, um, love, appreciation, acceptance um, from that particular group. So in older kids, it seems to be more of an affinity group type of thing. They also have curriculums. Um, I'm not 100% sure how effective those are. Um, I mainly focus on students like pre-K through fifth grade, Yeah. Uh, like before these personalities get strongly developed. Is <laughs> more so my jam. Um, but I do know that affinity groups are really effective, but I'm not so sure about SEL curriculums, how effective they are, like, once we are teenage level. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking about affinity groups for for professionals, because you talked about sort of the, the faculty groups at the at the, the PWIs, um, uh, we were kind of talking about this for briefly before we hit record. Would uh, MOBAC, so the Missouri Black Behavior Analyst Community, kind of be considered like an affinity space for behavior analysts that are Black sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. right on, right on. Cool, cool, cool. Um, okay, so what 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 sort of things uh, did you did you do in that second study where you were looking at the first and second grade folks? Yeah, so um, in the second study, um, all of the teachers were Black because, I mean, that was just reflective of the area, um, mm-hmm. but they were um, they, they were all women, um, so they weren't matched by um, gender, but 
they, I mean, they were able to go to a black teacher as far as race. Um, the other thing in the um, other study is it wasn't focused on self-monitoring. It was focused on um, curricular adaptations to mm. existing evidence-based um, social and emotional learning curriculum, um, which was strong start. And so I adapted it to be effective with um, the black student population. So I changed the literature um, to books that would be reflective of characters and family structures and situations mm. that um, reflective of things they may experience. So like books where like mom and grandma live together and they're taking care of like sister and brother um, together. Um, books that focus on like natural hair, uh, books that focus on um, career um, attainment for Black children beyond athletics, um, books that focus on um, respect for authority figures and lawful figures in particular. Um, there's a study of the book, it was centered around like the story around Trayvon Martin and speaking mm -hmm. about like how hood wearing is publicly perceived. Um, and why it, it it may or may not be safe to do in certain places and instances. Wow. Um, so um, elementary school is a good place to start talking about like image and perception um, so that they can understand that it's, it's beyond their friend group um, and it's outside people in the world that exist too um, and how they perceive it. Um, so I use that book to talk about that. Um, other adaptations I made to the curriculum is it's very worksheet heavy in general. Lots mm. of worksheets, lots of mm. worksheets. However, um, this is Title I school, um, you know, reading comprehension, literacy reading period. Um, students were below grade level. So giving them worksheets that they can't read, like they're not gaining the things that they need mm. um, necessarily from the curriculum because they, they can't understand it. So creating more... Um, conversations, some more discussion questions related to um, what happened in the book, specific comprehension questions that you can answer and then turn into um, a conversation um, to talk about uh, what the situation looks like with students. Um, adding in the vocabulary, so like spelling and um, spelling and vocabulary, so them learning how to spell um, different words throughout the curriculum and making sure they understood what all these words meant. So that way they could be gaining the emotional competence that I was hoping they would get from the curriculum for just making the assumption like, oh, they know what it means. Like when I say frustrated or they know what it means when I say mm. um, in disbelief or unable, like, you know, making sure the students understand what it is we're saying. Um, so those are some of the different curricular adaptations that I made. And it also helps strengthen the student's literacy overall because um, we're doing reading comprehension. We're applying it and we're also doing spelling um, and then we're doing vocabulary and making sure they understand. And then we're taking that vocabulary word and we're using it in a sentence that day of something that actually happened. Um, so they can relate the thought of the vocabulary word to something that they actually engaged in. So they're more likely to remember the word and its meaning. Really, really interesting. And I, I've heard of Strong Start. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, up in in place where I am in Canada, that we have something called I think it's called like Headstrong or Headstart. I think it's similar. Um, um, 
but it sounds like there's 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 a lot of problems with with this curriculum. Yeah, it's it's definitely for more uh, affluent spaces. Yeah, yeah, and that leads me to a question that um, based on something you and I were talking about before when we met previously um, about how there's a real you know uh, drive for the use of evidence-based practice in, 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 in a lot of the stuff we're doing, but that there's some problems with that. Um, um, can, can you talk a little bit about what your thoughts are there? Yeah. I mean, we have, um, we have a lot of curriculum and interventions that we're saying are evidence-based, but then when it comes to um, those of us who focus on non-white students, like trying to implement these curriculums or interventions, they don't work. Like we don't get the same results. Then you go back and either look at the literature or you're able to contact the original researcher and ask them about the sample. Oh, I have one black kid or I didn't have any. Or mm. I didn't have any or I didn't have any Latinx kids. So it's like now as a field, field being special education, we need to define and discuss what we mean when we say mm. evidence-based. Evidence-based for who? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and who being a race? Who being gender, who being like social economic class, um, those things matter. Who mm -hmm. being urban or rural, suburban, those things matter too. Well, this makes you think of you know ABA research, and uh, you know, and, and 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 I don't. I'm guessing. I'm guessing it's probably similar there. That that mm -hmm. that that I haven't looked at sort of you know. The demographics of the samples and studies, because I think a lot of us are taught to sort of skip over the subjects and the and 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 the methods and jump right into to read the abstract and jump into the discussion and and kind of go, oh, this is a good intervention, let's do it. Um, but to consider that uh, those samples, we really don't have evidence-based practices for everyone. They're right. evidence-based practices for certain groups of people. Um, yeah, that that's. And because our sample was X big or our study was delivered X way, yeah. we put the label on it that is evidence-based when it's not. Yeah, yeah. And so is, is that changing? I mean, obviously you're doing some of that work, but is, is, is there a push to sort of replicate a lot of these practices in a more culturally responsive way now? So... I feel like it's a slow but steady road. I feel like, um, or from what I've seen, it's more of a push for uh, people to try to write more um, um, practitioner pieces around what they think is um, culturally responsive or culturally adapted or culturally appropriate. Mm. Uh, but we're still behind when it comes to the research, diversifying our samples, diversifying our experimental designs. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, disaggregating the data um, because mm. people know their samples aren't diverse um, so they just really don't disaggregate like you'll see like oh I had this many first this many sixth graders ninth graders but um, you don't see that like black white Asian Latina Hispanic you, you don't see that mm. I almost feel like journals should like require it like across the board, like that you disaggregate your data mm -hmm. and you need to be transparent that you have no students of color mm -hmm. in this area. 
Um, now, there are some journals who have moved to that model, like where they're requiring you to segregate your data and be upfront or and not allowing you to call it diverse. Um, but I, I think that's something that needs to be more universal. Hmm. And you also kind of talked to, with me, about, again, in, in our sort of pre-chat about um, and I think that's kind of related about how there are also barriers to to, to getting some of this stuff published. And, and can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the main thing um, that I find to be a struggle is clearly we see that Black children, Black people, um, Latinx people, Hispanic people, people of color, Asian people, people who are non-white experience many inequities, at least over here in America. And we can see the results of that on our news daily. There is something new that has happened that is unfortunate every single day. And so when I always get the response back, like, well, why just this population? We want it to be generalizable. And it's like, okay, so first of all, the numbers are so, there are more people of color in this country then there are white people. So let's recognize that. Um, so that's one reason why, because we have more diverse student force to work with here and learners that we need to educate. And then the second thing is obviously the skill set and looking at the graduation rates for students who are non-white um, and the school to prison pipeline. There's a major issue and a major lack over here in the system of education. And we need to figure out where we're going wrong in America and how we can get more children across the finish line of graduation, at least of high school, versus in a jail cell. Um, but I mainly get like, oh, why this group? And then I get, um, uh, isn't this a limitation? It's, it's like, do I need to ask, are you a limitation? Because there's less people um, that are white than are non-white in this country right now. So are you the limitation? Like that's almost what I want to ask. Like, well, would, would it, it wouldn't be a limiting that I only do it on white kids hmm. and I have diversity. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The third secret word is bias. Within my sample, because there's more people of color in this country than there are white people. So you, you might be the limitation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another thing that is like sort of offensive. And then um, you have people who believe that everyone has the same opportunities, like regardless mm. of death, regardless of gender, regardless of, you know, parents, like they, they, they just feel like we all have the same opportunities. Mm. Um, and that's not true. And the, the ones who feel that we have the same opportunities also feels like there's one way to learn. There's one way to do it. 
And everybody has the opportunity to grasp onto that way. And if they get it, they get it and they do well. And if they don't, they don't. And it's survival of the fittest. So they're really into Darwinism. Um, hmm. So it, it has been a struggle to um, really talk about the importance of this work and um, to have people understand that this is not like some sort of movement or some sort of woke issue mm-hmm. or um, a plague, as some people call it, like this DEI plague. Yeah. Is coming wow. Like, no, that's not what it is. It's being reflective of the learners that we, we have in our classroom. So more non-white students and making sure that when we say something is evidence-based, that it's evidence-based for all, like all children. Also, mm. or that something is equitable that it works for everyone, not just whomever you did it with. Mm. Um, so I mean that's still like a struggle right now. I hate to say it, but like diversity is trending, equity's trending, inclusion's trending, and so people having special calls uh, for their journals, and now they want to publish these articles. What happens when it goes out of style? Is it going to stay in style? Is mm. it going to stay important? Yeah. Thing because of who the president is, who the governor is, like whatever, or what type of spectacle is taking place in the, the face of politics right now. Mm. Uh, so I'm just interested to see like how, how long we'll keep this energy. Yeah, for sure. Mm. You know, it's, it's already been longer than I thought it would be. Um, <laughs> um, and the one thing, the one thing that does give me some hope is, is that I've interviewed a lot of folks like yourself that are young, uh, that are doing this work, that are passionate about this work and, and, and kind of want to make this change. And, and maybe you were, you were all around before and I just didn't get to know you yet. Um, but but I feel I feel like there's there there are there are more folks you know that are that are are kind of looking to do this work, um, and there are more mentors now that are mentoring some of these folks to do this work. So they're seeing, you know, someone's you know I, I, an undergrad seeing someone that looks like them, you know, in a in a you know in a in a leadership role or in a researcher role, and thinking maybe they could do that. And so I'm hoping it continues even on that level. But I, I hear you sort of in terms of sort of the because in the end, it all comes down to getting funded for all this stuff, and 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 uh, you know, and getting and getting that stuff published. And as long as I guess, as long as there are barriers in journals and barriers in in you know political will and all those sorts of things, it's easy to be pessimistic about uh, the future of this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, you're going to keep doing the work for a while. Um, you, 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 yes. just, you, you just started a new gig in, in Missouri. Um, and I, I read in your bio that you're, you're, you're directing a, a, an inaugural undergraduate and graduate research lab uh, focused on refining uh, and testing interventions to reduce exclusionary discipline practices, uh, among other things. And it, it goes on for a good paragraph. Um, so what's uh, what what are some of the things in the pipeline for you and and, and your lab you know over the next couple of years? Yeah, so um we're gonna do more work in rural spaces mm. for children of color. So um looking at how to build their social and emotional competence as well as um you know um work around externalizing and internalizing behaviors. Mm. Uh, 
So I definitely want to do more work in rural spaces. And so I have that opportunity here. Um, so we'll start some of that in the spring. I'm also going to branch out and do some more um, culturally responsive social and emotional work at the tier two level, incorporating like check in, check out with preschoolers. Hmm. So working with the little littles, Fun. Um, so that's something new. Um, and then I'm interested to see, um, you know, my goal is to come up with some sort of like module like program um, that pre-service and um, current teachers can go through mm. to like get some sort of like cultural competence certificate. So mm. I'd love to create something like that um, via like a grant project or something. Um, so those are some of the things that we'll be working on. Um, so I'm excited about that. Finishing my um, culturally adapted social and emotional learning curriculum and like getting that published and out for people to be using. Nice. And so obviously, so you've got some grad students this fall? Yeah, I have quite a few that I'll get to work with. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and then there's a lot of partnership here. Um, so uh, we have the Missouri um, PBIS Center here, mm. um, at the University of Missouri, um, under the direction of Tim Lewis. Um, yep so we have that we have the missouri prevention science institute um Mm. with keith herman and wendy ranke um so they do a lot in like school psych and the counseling world and sort of bridging that mental health back to that social and emotional learning Mm. piece um so i'm happy to like uh, be able to do some partnerships with them um and then great early childhood connections here um dr melissa stormont um get to do some work with her um, and uh, bridging myself over into the preschool world. So lots of exciting connections and moving parts here. Um, and one thing I should point out is um, I'm actually the first um, Black woman faculty that they've had in this department at the university. Wow. Yeah, so. Well, congratulations, that's I amazing. I have a, a precedent to set there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and is what, uh, Obviously, you're you, you know you're 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 liking where you're at and what's going on. Um, has it been supportive being you know sort of the only one so far? You know, it really really has. Yeah. Um, it, it's really been a change. So like my only um academic experience before like was my first job out of school, which was assistant professor, a special ed at Penn State. Yeah, and you know I kind of got a perception of what academia was from there. Yeah. Um, once I came here, it's completely different. Mm. Uh, like even before starting my position, um, when it comes to behavior, we also have uh, Dr. Chad Rose here. Before my start date, I had already been on like three grant submissions. Mm. Uh, I worked at Penn State for two years and the collaboration um, was not there. The collegialness mm. um, was not there. Hmm. Um, so it's definitely supportive here. Um, it's IES time in the field of education right now and the energy in the department of everyone submitting something, working on something, being excited about it. Um, like, it's like, why would you not submit? Everyone is so excited to do it. Um, so I, I really, I really like it here. The community is different here in Columbia. Hmm. Uh, it is a college town, but it's much bigger, um, than where my family was before, um, it's much more diverse. Um, it's nice to walk around and actually see another black person, like, yeah. and not see them like once a month. 
and you just saw one. Um, so that's really nice. Um, it's the weather is it's a little hot right now because it's the Midwest, but um, I believe they experience all the seasons. The climate on campus is really good. I mainly mm. just been doing things within the College of Ed, but mm. the dean super supportive. Um, Chris Riley Tillman, um, the experience has been really great, and I'm awesome. just coming up with like all the campus orientations, and so, um, you know, they're really focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion here at Mizzou, but not from the framework of race, you know, like mm. from the framework, like I said, of like different identities yes. um, that identify with cultures, um, the same way that you acknowledge um, the land and the space in which your podcast is created. Mm. Um, every morning, starting our orientations, they acknowledge the land and space of this being a land grant institution, and um, mm. you know whose land it was before it, it was Mizzou. So yeah. I, I love just the um, the realization, recognizing, and uh, displaying that here. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. Really cool. Well, I'm glad you're in a. You're in a good place to, um, so you can stick around for a while. And I've heard lots of good things about Missouri in general. There's just seems to be so much going on in, in terms of, you know, school psych and ABA and, 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 and special ed and all those sorts of things in Missouri, like everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, really cool. Well, Dr. Aaron, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Really, really cool chat. Really good to learn from you. and look forward to see what's going to come out, come out of the next few years when, when some of these grants get, get going. Thank you. I'll be sure to like email you so you know. <laughs> Joke. Thanks again.